Well, I'd ask that you'd stand uh, for the reading of God's Word as we read this prior to the sermon this morning. Our reading comes from the book of Galatians, chapter 5, and I will read verses 1 through 6. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. You can have a seat. Well, good morning, everybody. It's my pleasure to be with you here this morning at Legacy. Uh, I think everybody here knows me, but I'll still do the short introduction of my name is Kent Smith. Uh, I am a student at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, set to complete my master's degree in theological studies here uh, in the next few days. Uh, my wife, Tiffany, and our two children, Lily and Caleb, uh, and we sure do love everybody here at Legacy. It's my great privilege to bring you the Word of God today. Uh, before we dig into the Word, let's pray and ask for His help. Well, Father, we come to you now, uh, opening up your word to, to hear from you, uh, not, not to hear from any preacher or any uh, just individual that has good ideas that he thinks need to be shared, but rather that we would hear your word. And Holy Spirit, we pray that you would take that word, apply it to our, our hearts and our minds, that no one would leave here unchanged, that these words wouldn't go out and return empty, but as promised, they would come back to you, Lord, having achieved what they set out to do. I pray for my, my brothers and sisters here that they would be blessed by your word, that they would love it and, and cherish it and commit it to their hearts, Lord, that when called upon, they'll have a reason for the hope within them. I ask you, be with us now, Holy Spirit. Amen. When Caleb asked if I would preach this Sunday, he said that I could pause our study in Matthew. Uh, and given that this is the, the last Sunday between uh, right now and the new year, I thought that might be a good thing to do. Uh, so I want to be clear today that I'm, I'm going to handle the text a little bit more topically than, than we have been, uh, which should be an infrequent practice, uh, but nonetheless one worth doing every once in a while. So. With uh, Christmas behind us and the new year rapidly approaching, I think many of us are taking stock of the last 12 months uh, and perhaps even setting goals for the next 12. People across the country are, are making resolutions like eat healthier, uh, lose the COVID weight that we've put on. That's mine. Uh, finish your education. All these things that take discipline. And that's the heart of a resolution, isn't it? I mean, you, you're resolved to employ your self-discipline or your self-control towards a goal that otherwise you could not achieve. 
Without this dedicated focus, you would not achieve it. You resolve to discipline yourself in one way or another towards a goal. I think as Christians, we ought to do the same. And so when I was asked for my sermon title, I said, well, let's, let's let the title be Spiritual Disciplines. And that title alone puts us in a precarious position. I mean, discipline is a topic that has been neglected for some time by our culture, but more frighteningly by our churches. Discipline has become something of a dirty word, hasn't it? In our culture, there's no doubt about that. Discipline is, is not an interesting topic to the culture. But I'm not here addressing the culture at large. I'm here addressing the Church of Christ. And even for us, hasn't discipline been assigned a negative connotation? I'd be willing to guess that if on any given Sunday, in any given Protestant church, if I were to walk into the adult Sunday school room and say, if you're going to call yourself a Christian, you ought to be doing X, Y, and Z, you probably wouldn't be able to hear anything other than the sound of me being thrown out of the building to cries of legalist. He's a legalist. That's not what legalism is. But that's where the debate has always been, hasn't it? You have legalism versus license. Legalism here meaning things you must do for the sake of your salvation. And license meaning that you have the freedom to do anything independent of your salvation. I want to say this up front and, and we'll come back to it here in a moment, but both of those definitions are wrong. They're wrong. But that's how they get used in these arguments. You'll have people, the, the people that call everyone a legalist, they'll be citing verses like, like the passage we just read in Galatians. And then you'll have the other side of the debate, uh, citing James. Let's go to James 2. Open up your Bibles to James 2. You're going to be in the New Testament. You're going to go past the Gospels and all of Paul's letters. past Hebrews, and then you find James. I'm just going to pick it up in James 2, 18. James 2, 18. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. And if you let your eyes come down to, to verse 26, the end of that paragraph, it says, For as the body, apart from the spirit, is dead, so also faith, apart from works, is dead. So what do we do with this? It seems like Paul contradicts James, and so eventually I'm forced to choose sides in the legalism versus license debate. Well, of course, we know that Scripture doesn't contradict itself, so we can put that to rest right away, but, but still, we're forced with, what do we do with these texts? Well, I want us to consider spiritual disciplines and, and whatever New Year's resolutions we may create from them under three main points. So if you're a note taker, I'm going to make your life easy. Three main points. First point is the debate. The debate. Secondly, we'll talk about the desire. 
And then the final point will be the disciplines. The debate, the desire, and then finally the disciplines. So let's begin by settling the debate. I'm going to suggest to you something radical that ought not be, uh, but the debate between legalism and license is a fallacy, all on its own. The entire thing is meaningless. I propose that any time spent on the debate between legalism and license of Christians trying to put an X somewhere on that spectrum is time wasted. You can write this real big in your notes under that first point, the debate between legalism and license is a fallacy. You know how in many debates, people will talk about a pendulum? Like the pendulum was over here for a number of years, and now it started swinging this way, and and the truth is somewhere in between those two points, right? The pendulum idea doesn't work here. The truth is not in the middle of legalism and license, as if there's some optimum blend of the two. Now allow me to illustrate this in, in terms of a relationship. Suppose we have a parent and a child. The child says to their parent, Mom or Dad, I want to go fishing. Great North Dakota activity. What do I have to do to have you take me fishing? And of course, the parent responds with, well, that sounds great. I think if we were to just mow the lawn, that'd be great. And and then we'll head out. We'll go fishing. And then the child lets out the biggest groan in the history of groans. Pitches a fit slams the door as they walk out to the shed. They kick that lawnmower to get it started. They race up and down the yard, mowing the lawn, doing an awful job at it. And then they come back into their parents and they say, there, I did it. I want to go fishing now. Brothers and sisters, must that parent take that child fishing? They mowed the lawn, that was the deal. Yeah, lots of lots of this way head shakes, right? Um, as you know, despite how quickly we all agree on that, and we do, there's there's no reason to ch- take that child fishing. There would be people in this world that treat God just that same way. This is the the next sub point in your notes. Legalism is trying to merit salvation. Legalism is the thought that if I do X, God owes me Y. Whatever I do here, God must give me something in return for it. He is obligated regardless of the heart with which I accomplish it. One final definition of of legalism would be uh, paraphrased from John MacArthur, but he says, legalism is offering to God unacceptable worship and then demanding that he accept it. That is what Paul is rallying against in Galatians. And so often, we conjure up images of people who say, if you want to go to heaven, you better be wearing a floor-length denim skirt. And those, those are the legalists we see now, right? But listen, church, I'm telling you, the, the face of legalism has by and large changed today. Legalism doesn't look like that for the most part. Now your legalist sounds like, I had X or Y or Z emotional experience. And because I had that emotional experience, because I responded to some music, because I raised my hand, because I cried, 
obviously God owes me salvation. The legalism today is hidden under a mask of vague spiritual experience and it demands acceptance of worship as worship, regardless of if it actually is worship. Now, license, the opposite here in the debate, is, is much simpler, but equally offensive to God. License says, I don't need to do anything, and God must love me still. Well, this is, this is just legalism turned inside out. Here, the parents said to the child, hey, I'd love to go fishing with you. Mow the lawn and we'll head out. And the child says, I don't feel like mowing the lawn. And because you love me, you'll take me fishing anyway. This is, this is a sort of emotional abuse where the child, thinking selfishly, accuses the parents of being unloving if the child doesn't get what they want in the way they want it. It's a one-way relationship. You must love me always. I will love you when I feel like it. And so now I ask you, is the relationship that we are supposed to have with God somewhere between making demands of him and an emotionally abusive relationship? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. We don't want to end up splitting the difference between those two things or, or meeting in the middle of them. That would be a disaster. Thus, I declare the debate between legalism and license dead. Whew. Now, let me tell you one of the, the key beauties of the gospel. We just examined the debate as our first point. Now in your notes, we're moving on to the desire. Desire. If we can understand desire, we will see that it destroys the entire premise of the debate we just talked about, and the key to understanding it lies in the three tenses of salvation. The three tenses of salvation. Salvation doesn't just happen the moment you knelt down and said your first prayer. Nor is salvation only the process throughout your life as you learn more and act more of what it means to be a Christian and become more like Christ. Nor is salvation only that moment where Christ walks you through the heavenly gates. Salvation is all of these things. Romans 8 links them all together. By God's grace, you were justified through your faith in Christ. You are being sanctified by the work of the Holy Spirit during your life, and you will be glorified by Christ upon seeing him. You see, salvation is past, present, and future. Past in that I can look back to when I was justified, instantly declared righteous, and thus saved from the penalty of sin. Present, in that the Holy Spirit works in me now, sanctifying me so that I would not simply be declared righteous, but actually righteous. And thus, in the present, I am being freed from the very power of sin. And in the glorious future, 
when the roll is called up yonder, when we feast in the house of Zion, when we see Christ not dimly but perfectly and we are made like him with all of our tears wiped away as the struggle against sin is over, that day we will be free from the very presence of sin. When you became a Christian, you were freed from the penalty of sin. Presently, your life is in your life. You're being freed from the power of sin. And in the future, you will be free from the very presence of sin. Now, these are the three tenses of salvation, and it's key that we understand them because they are the death of both legalism and license and the birth of something new, the birth of desire. Christians, true Christians, do not ask how high or low the bar is set for them to get into heaven. True Christians desire Christ, desire to please Christ, desire to be like Christ, while legalism tries to earn heaven and license presumes that it already has heaven. True Christians desire to be free from their sins. Philippians 2 confirms that God works in us to will and to work for his good pleasure. It is a change of our wills. And the church has suffered from meek preaching on this subject, so I'll just say it plainly to make up for any lost time. If you are constantly wondering what's the least you have to do to get into heaven or to be called a Christian, you may not be one. If your interest in Christianity is largely contained to an hour or two on Sunday that you get through to get to the rest of your life, you may not be a Christian, even if you call yourself one, even if uh, you've been to church your whole life, even if your parents were Christians. Those things don't make you a Christian. That's legalism, right? That's checking those boxes and saying, God must owe me salvation. Anyone can say they are a Christian. Anyone can walk into church on Sunday. But Christ does not say, you must go to church on Sunday. He says, you must be born again. Born from above. You must be made a new creation. And why? Because when through genuine faith... You put your trust in Christ, and you're made a new creature. You are baptized by Christ in the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit sets about the work of sanctifying you. And you now have a new nature with new desires, and praise God, desires that seek after Christ. Brothers and sisters, you have not only been declared free, you are being made actually free right now as the love we once had for sin is swept away there is no empty space left in your heart that space is being filled with a love for christ he keeps the promises that he made in ezekiel it he, he, that love takes the cold heart makes it warm and that heart that heart can't help but beat with love for christ he would make it no other way we can love him because he first loved us. Love is possible. Desire is possible. It has been made possible to do good works in genuine love for Christ. 
This is what freedom from the law is. And if we could just grasp this as Christians, if we could just grasp hold of this, our whole church would look different. Our, our lives would look different. Legalism doesn't understand love. It doesn't. It lives in fear. Fear of not measuring up. Fear of not having God owe me something on the day of judgment. The person who leans on license, they may understand what love is, but they don't have it. They don't own it as their, their, their very own possession. They have seen it modeled to them, and then they take advantage of the person modeling it. But they don't demonstrate love. But I don't really believe that either of those two uh, types of people really constitute the bulk of true Christianity. I'm not sure they can, honestly. I mean, one tries to merit salvation, and the other one presumes on it. Neither one of those things uh, really shows an understanding of the gospel. But I do think many true Christians in our time have been raised with a faulty definition of legalism that has scared them away from any active participation in their own spiritual growth. Misunderstanding sanctifying grace, they believe that any sort of self-control or effort or discipline is legalism. Now, in a, in a sad picture, right? This is, this is like a bird has been given beautiful wings, but doesn't understand his part in developing the gift. So he never trains him, never actually takes flight, and spends each day the same as he did, the very day that he hatched. The gift of flight would belong to that bird if he would but claim it, but he does not. And so instead, he unnaturally just walks the earth when he could be soaring. So too, this Christian never finds any more spiritual maturity than they had the day they were born again, never realizing the heights of spirituality that he could reach or just to use the gifts given to him. But this isn't what scripture teaches us to do. God has not given us wings so that we may spend our lives in the nest. Which brings me to the main passage I want to talk about on spiritual discipline. And some of you might be panicking at this moment and saying, whoa, wait a second, we're just starting the sermon. Uh, don't worry, I'm not going to do that to you. Okay, we won't, we won't do that. My last points are few and they are quick and they are in Titus 2. So if you want to turn back in your Bibles, just a few pages, you'll find Titus. Titus 2. I'm going to read this, and while I do, I want you to count how many times the phrase self-control or something similar is used. All right, try to, try to keep tally here. But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled. Sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good, and so train the young women to love their husbands and children to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, and submissive to their own husbands, 
that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works. And in your teachings, show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Bondservants are be to, uh, to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, who are zealous for good works, declare these things. Exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. I don't think anybody could miss the call to be self-controlled there, to exercise discipline. But did you catch how any of it is possible? Look at verse 11. Verse 11 says, For the grace of God has appeared. And what kind of grace? The grace that trains. Training grace. So do you see, church? Paul is encouraging Christians to use the grace they have been given through spiritual disciplines. When we engage in self-control and spiritual discipline, when we resolve to pursue Christ, It is not legalism or license. It is grace training us up. This is a whole different spectrum than legalism or license. They aren't anywhere on this map. Let's think again about the relationship between parent and child. The parent comes home from work, and the child didn't simply do his chores, but surprisingly took care of a few other things around the house. And when the parents ask why, The child says, well, I know you work hard. I really appreciate the the things that you do for me. I just wanted to show you that I love you too. And the parent says, well, I love you too. Let's go fishing. Now, there's no legalism or license in that, is there? There's no legalism in trying to please someone that you love even if the task itself is not one that you would do given anything else to do. The task isn't important to you. The person is important to you. And you are demonstrating your love to them through this task. This is like a, like a bride getting ready on her wedding day. There's a lot of work that goes into a bride getting ready. Now, is she doing that so that her husband must marry her? Of course not. She's doing it so that he will be pleased when he sees her. And that's wonderful. See, in the verses we read earlier, in Galatians, in the book of James, both of those authors assume that the Christian is born again, made alive to love of Christ and desiring to do good works, 
And so there is no contradiction between them. We are saved by the grace of God alone through faith in Christ alone. And then after that, our hearts are being remade by the spirit grace, training us up to joyfully be obedient to the commands of Christ. Sanctification is the training grace of Titus two. That's why Paul could write both Galatians and talk about freedom. And he could, he could go and talk about self-control in Titus. One author doing them both. There's, there's no contradiction there. And I don't want to belabor the point any further, but, but recognize that practicing spiritual discipline is not in and of itself legalism. Jesus, Paul, John, James, they all talk about it. It's everywhere in the New Testament. Dr. Sinclair Ferguson, he said that there is no such thing as genuine knowledge of God that does not show itself in obedience to his word and will. And that's the truth of scripture. Christ says, if you love me, you'll what? Obey my commands. Love creates obedience. William Cowper wrote one of my favorite hymns, one that we get to sing today, actually. Um, But he wrote this, and I think it's a wonderful summary. To see the law by Christ fulfilled and hear his pardoning voice changes a slave into a child and duty into choice. You don't need me here to tell you where the desires of your heart are. You know. You know if they're aligned to Christ or how much they're aligned to Christ. Pray that they might be more and more in Christ. And that way the remainder of what I'm about to say doesn't sound like a call to legalism. And then when you're trying to avoid that, you fall right into license. Get off that pendulum. We don't need those things. Instead, pray for grace and go get involved in your training. It's important that I pause here and clarify something. If you are sitting there and thinking to yourself, who does he think he is to say these things? Uh, Please know that I am in need of this very same grace. I am in need of these very same disciplines. If you think it is really hard to hear some of these things, you should try teaching on them. It's, uh, It's rough. I have not arrived at perfection. I am not a judge sitting here, standing here, condemning you. But I am your brother and I care for you. I care for you. And so maybe we can, we can watch out for each other in this life. We can hold each other accountable to use the grace that we've been given and fight sin together. All right. We've ended the debate between legalism and license. And instead, we've seen how desire brought about, sal- uh, the, the grace brought about in salvation trains us up in spiritual disciplines. So what exactly are some of the spiritual disciplines? Uh, Well, I challenge you to read your Bibles, meditate on the word, and and see if the Holy Spirit doesn't reveal to you the things in your life that you need to be working on, that you need to resolve to do. God will write his word on your heart. He'll give you a greater love, and you will quickly find these disciplines out. You may also want to read a book. Um, I I know several of you in the church, the men in the church at least, are working through Don Whitney's book. Fantastic resource. Um, Disciplines of a Godly Man by Kent Hughes. His wife wrote a corresponding book. There's something like 300 different ideas in here. Uh, So huge resources, right? In your bulletins, I think we have a link to Jonathan Edwards' resolutions, which if if you've not read, 
Uh, you, you ought to do that today. It's wonderful to read. But final warning, don't listen to a single word of what I'm about to say. If what you're thinking is, okay, this guy's going to give me a way to, to get some points with God. That's not what we're doing here. I have no interest in taking someone who is not born again and turning them into a Pharisee. That's not the point. However, if today you've realized that you, you've felt in your heart that you have been trapped by sin and you've never felt the desire for the freedom from sin that Christ can bring to you, come see me afterwards and, and we can talk about that. We can begin there. But if you have, I want to give you just a few roads to run down. Perhaps some of the more neglected aspects of the disciplines. I know, I know for me personally, these have stood out. So I challenge each of us to, to make an effort on these in the coming year and see if your soul doesn't feel refreshed. See if that training grace doesn't show up and meet you along the way. So in your notes, under our final main point, the disciplines, I'm going to give you three disciplines. Maybe we can even call them resolutions since it is the time of year. Uh, and they correspond to a daily spiritual discipline, a weekly spiritual discipline, and a strategic spiritual discipline. And I'll keep them short so that we'll all be okay. A daily spiritual discipline. When you wake up, read your Bible. Maybe even before you get out of bed. Don't get on social media first. Don't eat first. If you want to obey Christ, you will need to know his will. And he speaks to us through his word. Go find out what his will is. Dedicate a specific time of your morning for it and do it. I know for many of us, uh, we're, we're short on time. I understand that. Uh, but somehow, we manage to brush our teeth each morning. You know how we do that? We prioritize it. We make it a priority and we do it. So let's resolve to make the word a priority. Do this and see if God doesn't work in your life through it tangibly each day. I know for me, starting the day in the scripture sets my tone and my focus for the rest of the day, reminding me of my priorities, my Christian priorities. Now, General Harrison was an officer in both world wars, the Korean War, and he was a recipient of the Purple Heart, Silver Star, Distinguished Service Cross, and more. From age 20 until the end of his life, he read the Old Testament once a year and the New Testament four times a year. Four times a year. During the wars, he would make use of the two or three days breaks that he got in there to catch up on his reading and stay on schedule. That's discipline. That's devotion. That's resolve. Okay, weekly spiritual discipline. Weekly. Remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Now, I won't here address Old Testament Sabbath versus New Testament Sabbath or what day is what, uh, but recognize that when I use the term Sabbath here, I'm using it to reflect the Lord's Day, a Christian Sabbath, the first day of the week, Sunday. That is what I'm talking about. I'm also here not going to debate whether or not the Sabbath is, is applicable as a portion of the, the moral law or not. I can hear someone saying, well, it doesn't matter. I'm a, I'm a New Testament Christian. Every day is the Sabbath for me. Well, I agree. That's, that's how it ought to be, right? But is that how you practice it? 
Have you made every day like the Sabbath or have you made the Sabbath like every other day? Have we taken the Lord's day and made it at best the Lord's two hours? I'm here to tell you that if we as Christians can take Sunday and genuinely put off all distractions, your soul will be reminded of the past paradise of Eden and the future paradise in heaven. The Sabbath was made for man. Let's use it. Some here may have no idea where to begin to keep the Sabbath holy. Others might think that I'm telling you to kick your feet up after church and and watch the football game. I'm not. What does it mean to keep something holy, to make something holy? Set it apart. Make it distinct. Make Make it unique. So in the context of a week, how do I spend my time? Well, by and large, I, I, I spend it at work, right? So I can own a house, so I can feed my family, so I can have a car, so, so I, so I, so I. We spend the bulk of our week doing things ultimately for our own interests, and that's okay. I don't mean that in a negative, selfish sense. Our world requires us to upkeep ourselves, It requires us to work, and we should work and get something out of it. That's fine. But if you want the Sabbath to look different, here's my suggestion. Don't serve yourself. Serve God. Serve others. Worship God. Worship God with others. Purposefully limit yourself to activities that fall in those categories. On Sunday, make God 100% of your focus. 100%. Not a day of leisure, but the Lord's day. Genuine rest is found in that way. And you can take that day and you can live it in such a way that reminds you that you are weak and the things that you must do in this fallen world, they are not the priorities in your life. And we have a God that cares for us. So I don't have to be at that grindstone seven days a week. And rest, eternal rest, has been found in Christ. It wasn't until recently it was strange to suggest that Sunday be different than other days. You know, I wonder what changed. But I read once of a prominent man in the late 1800s who took the Sabbath quite seriously. Uh, He wouldn't even mail a letter if he thought it was going to be carried on a Sunday. When a topic came up about some responsibility on Monday, he would say, that is a fine topic and I am sure one that we can address tomorrow. There's no doubt that day was holy in his mind. All right, my last point. My last point is broader. It is indeed strategic. The spiritually disciplined Christian deals with sin and deals with sin ruthlessly. Ruthlessly. Deal with sin ruthlessly. Your enemy is ruthless. And he will not quit. Any foothold you give, he will exploit. So tear them down. Crush them. Have no proportionate response. If the enemy launches a dart, one single dart in your direction, you go nuclear in return. Anything that attempts to take your soul's focus off of God, you either beat it into submission or you cast it off entirely. But you will not compromise with sin. You will not tolerate its presence. And you certainly will not think you can somehow control it. 
Do you have those little sins in your life right now? The ones that you've become comfortable with, the ones that aren't a big deal. I'm telling you right now, you have a bear on a leash and you're treating it like a puppy. If you doubt that, stop giving it what it wants and see if it just complies or if it roars at you. We must be ruthless because the danger is serious. If your eye offends you, pluck it out. Those are not the words of a moderate, but they are the words of someone who understands the stakes. And if you are a genuine Christian and you don't deal with sin ruthlessly, God, in his mercy, may. He will let you experience the extreme pains of your sin if that's what it takes to bring you back into his fold. And if you don't believe that, if you aren't convinced of the links he will go to, I encourage you to examine the cross. That's the length he will go to. To deal with sin, he was willing to give his only son to die. And it is a much smaller thing to discipline his children. And he certainly disciplines those he loves. So don't make it come to this. Repent now. Be ruthless towards sin and give no foothold. Any history buffs might remember when Cortez sailed to Mexico, his crews were fearful And some were even so afraid of the adventure ahead that they were looking back at the ships and thinking, maybe we sail home. You recall what Cortez had them do? Burn the ships. Burn the ships. They didn't need those for the mission they were on anymore, and we don't need the footholds that Satan might use to exploit us. Be ruthless. All right, my time is up. We've put to rest legalistic objections, learning that grace rightly enables us to self-control and spiritual discipline with love. We've laid out three spiritual disciplines of a varying scale that you can pick up and use right now. But maybe you're in a place spiritually right now. And you hear these things and, and, and you've known them for some time. These aren't new spiritual disciplines to you. But you're tired, and every day already seems like a battle. You're looking back on your year, and it seems like you've had more failures than successes, more surviving in the fight against sin than thriving in it. Satan seems to have much more than just footholds in your life. So what do you do when midnight on the 31st arrives, and all you can think of is the failures of the last 12 months. All you feel is the the brokenness while a brand new year is staring you in the face. To my struggling brother or sister, I say our Savior is gentle and lowly. He does not break what he finds is already bent to its limit. He does not snuff out those with only a few barely worn embers left in their soul. Now he is a healer. And though you feel like you failed each night, his mercies are new every morning. So when you wake up in that new year, take a hold of the peace waiting for you in Christ and the knowledge of his unfaltering love. Get up and try again.
till we see him and are made like him. Deny yourself, pick up your cross, and by the grace of God through the Holy Spirit, resolve to follow Christ. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we thank you for your word, for its, its clarity. Thank you for giving us something that we can put so much trust in, knowing that it is inspired by you, that it, it makes no errors, it has no contradictions, Lord. Holy Spirit, we pray for that training grace, that you would work in our hearts to, to give us a love for Christ that surpasses love for all else, that, that all the, the worldly duties that we have day in and day out uh, w- would be recognized as just that, duties. But Lord, that every spiritual discipline we get to engage with is just a blessing in our heart. It's growing us up in, into the maturity that you would have us grow into. Father, I, I pray for my brothers and sisters in the, in the year ahead. It's been hard years for everyone. I pray that you would give us resolve, that you would give us self-control. That regardless of what the, the upcoming year brings, you would have us look like Christians, behave like Christians, that the world would, would ask us what makes us different, and we can tell them about the love of God in Christ Jesus. Pray these things for your son's sake. Amen. Thank you, brother. And it's just as uh, an agreement with Kent that on the back of the worship guides, we do have a link for a Desiring God article on the resolutions of Jonathan Edwards. And just to uh, whet your appetite, because um, I think they're worth reading. And if I remember correctly, Kent, you can correct me if I'm wrong. He was quite the young man when he wrote these. We yeah, sixteen. You said started when he was sixteen writing these. I thought I I knew it was young. So this is a, a very young man um, who wrote a series of resolutions and just listen to resolution the one. Resolve that I will do whatsoever I think to be the most to God's glory and to my own good, profit and pleasure, in the whole of my duration, without any consideration of the time whether now or never so myriad of ages hence. Resolve to do whatever I think to be my duty and most for the good and advantage of mankind in general. Resolve to do this, whatever difficulties I meet with, how many and how great whatsoever. So they just start with a absolute commitment to do what is ever to the most glory of God and the good for himself and mankind. And if we know our Bibles, we will know that whatever is to God's greatest glory will be to the greatest good of God's people. Will we come now to the table? And if we think about the right way to approach this table, we have talked a number of times of what it means to be worthy of the table. And thinking about what, what Kent preached this morning, you know, the, the, the Christian who is worthy of the table is not the Christian who thinks 
How little must I do in order to be acceptable? What's the least I can do in order to get God to be okay with me, in order to be okay to be able to go in and partake of the things of God? It's also unworthy of the table of our Lord to be thinking, wow, look at all I have done. God surely now must approve of me. He surely now must accept what I've done. So if it is not those extremes and and not any halfway measure compromise between the two that makes the Christian walking right with God and worthy of the table, then it's something else. It's something of the one who has the desire to live for God, the desire to please God, the one who is walking with God, the one who seeks to obey and walk in obedience to Christ as is our calling in the gospel, yet who doesn't rest on their obedience, but rests on the work of Christ, the one who takes that broken body and shed blood of Christ and claims that as our worth before God. That is our standing before the King of Kings. And that is why we are worthy, because we are walking day by day dependent on the sacrifice of Christ. That is why we are worthy before God. So in just a moment, I'm going to invite you, if you are walking in faith, if you are walking in striving for obedience because you desire to please Christ and trusting in his sacrifice for us, then I invite you to come forward to grab of the elements, and then in a moment we will look to Scripture and take them together.